spiritual journey, I want to hear from those who have taken this path before me. This podcast focuses on them and listening to their stories uninterrupted. My name is Hiba Masood, and I invite you to reflect on the trajectories of their lives and the guidance and blessings provided by Allah along that journey. Today I am joined by Imam Yassin Dwyer. Imam Yassin is a well-known figure in the Canadian Muslim and the Black Muslim community. He comes with a long history of chaplaincy work, first with the Canadian Correctional Services, and then in the post-secondary setting at Ryerson University, and now at the University of Toronto. He is a chaplain with the Muslim Chaplaincy of Toronto, an organization that is very near and dear to my heart. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim Alhamdulillah Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen Wa sallallahu ala sayyidina Muhammad Wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in In the name of God, most gracious, most merciful All praise and all thanks belongs to God And we ask God Almighty to shower his peace, his blessing his benediction upon our beloved Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, his family, his companions, and the righteous everywhere. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Thank you, Sister Hiba, for the kind invitation to participate in your podcast. I grew up in a relatively traditional uh, Christian household. However, I couldn't say that my mother and father were, you know, overly observant but they did identify with being uh, Christians or belonging to the Christian church. Uh, Jamaica is a very uh, Protestant uh, country. So my father identified with the Methodist Church of Jamaica. It is one of the you know oldest established churches in Jamaica. Um, and I could say that when they came to Canada, they did not necessarily make it a condition to actually worship at a methodist church they were looking for any you know sacred space that was called a church um uh to you know belong to so i grew up in that kind of household um i grew up in a household that you know had bibles you know here and there uh typical of many uh, caribbean households always open to one of the psalms you know <laughs> uh, of david so i grew up with um uh, uh in a very culturally christian protestant household so growing up i did identify as a christian uh you know if if uh, if the census did come around you know to our home you know we would all <laughs> we would all identify as christians um um but we were never um uh, uh i would say overly observant christians but we did identify culturally uh, as christians you know observing all of the you know high holidays we did uh you know observe um uh christmas uh, we did observe Easter. We did go to, you know, service uh, on Good Friday. Um, so that was more or less the, you know, religious 
spiritual, cultural milieu of, of my growing up. So, um, how did you come across Islam? Well, I'm not sure how long this podcast is, but I'll try to uh, uh, give the uh, Coles notes. Um, uh, how did Brother Yassin learn about Islam? Well, I grew up, as I mentioned, in a very, you know, you know, a culturally Christian household. But of course, <clears throat> you know, many of us reach a certain stage in our youth where we start to ask a lot of questions. We start to um, reflect on some of the big questions, you know, like what is the meaning of life? What am I here for? So I went through a phase when I was a teenager where I began uh, to read a lot. Uh, I began um, to study a lot about about questions of, uh, you know, uh, religion, spirituality, um, cultural identity, um, along with playing basketball <laughs> and hanging out with my friends, etc. But, um, you know, being, um, being a black Canadian and being of Jamaican heritage, I was very interested in, in cultural issues, um, cultural identity issues. Um, I began learning a lot about my own history, you know, as a, a black Canadian, uh, learning, uh, much about African history. And of course, if you're studying African history, uh, it's inevitable that you come across, uh, Islam and Muslims because, um, population wise, the majority of the African continent is in fact, uh, Muslim. So I began reading a lot about the history of Africa, the history of Muslims in Africa, I came across some, you know, incredible names of African Islamic history, like Mansa Musa, who history records as being, you know, the wealthiest human being, uh, pound for pound in the history of humanity. So of course I read about uh, the glorious, you know, uh, histories of the empire of Mali, of Songhai, of Ghana, read about the history of Sankore University in what is today called Timbuktu. Many people, you know, hear the word Timbuktu, but they don't identify Timbuktu as a place of, of, of higher learning, um, that housed the university that was teaching um, high sciences, astronomy, mathematics, along with, you know, sacred law. So, of course, this piqued my interest, you know, in, uh, in the, in, in the Islamic religion. And of course, came across, uh, books like the autobiography of Malcolm X, which seems to, you know, um, be the catalyst for many people to actually <laughs> learn about Islam. Um, so I went through all of that. So primarily for, um, for cultural reasons, for identity reasons, I was learning a lot about Islam and also with the intention, um, to be able to have an intelligent conversation with a Muslim. If in fact I did meet one. So it was more of an intellectual curiosity, but also a curiosity that tied into my own a search for an authentic African, authentic black identity and connection. Okay. But eventually what happened is um, I began to um, pay attention to some of the, you know, uh, basic claims of the Islamic religion. 
Um, and eventually I had to um, really confront, you know, some of the major questions that, you know, um, the religion of Islam was asking someone like me. Uh, questions about about God, questions about my own um, uh, mortality, uh, questions about um, uh, how exactly, if indeed there is a God, how does that God communicate with his creation, right? So that tied me into the idea of um, the unity of the prophetic message from Adam all the way to our beloved Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. That attracted me very much. Again, aside from the cultural reasons, the identity reasons, but I was very much attracted to this idea that all of the prophets and all of the messengers, they taught the same religion and they all are coming out of the same divine, the same sacred source. That was a big claim. And I paid a lot of attention to that. In fact, I bought books about the, you know, history of all of the prophets. How, how, sorry, how old were you? I was in my late yeah. teens. I was in my late wow. teens. Again, I, that, that wasn't all I was doing. I was playing a lot of basketball, <laughs> hanging out, you know. But the, this particular question, the, these questions actually really, um, really excited me. And again, it was that idea that all of the prophets taught the same religion, that Islam is not really a religion in the traditional sense of a religion, or Islam is not necessarily a historical phenomenon of the seventh century. No, Islam means submission, surrender, obedience, wholehearted self-giving to the creator of the heavens and the earth. It's not named after a person. It's not named after a place. Rather, it's named after a relationship with the creator of the heavens and the earth. Again, that's a very big claim. And I just had to take that seriously. So slowly, 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 I just began, you know, reading, studying, and, you know, trying to understand what Islam was all about. And again, so I could have an intelligent conversation like I'm having with you now, uh, with a Muslim, right? Like that, that was really the intention. Yeah. yeah. So, so did you have any mentors um, or people you talked to or was it more a preparation for when you kind of found that person? Well, I could say that, you know, in my youth, um, uh, before I became Muslim, you know, I had a handful of, um, you know, folks that I could consider mentors. I would say my father probably was the, the best mentor I ever had. He was a very spiritual man. And he always, um, uh, you know, had a lot of questions about religion. Um, he had a very, uh, he, he had a, he, he had a, a, a skeptic streak that always showed up whenever we're talking about religion, usually Christianity or usually the church. So he was, but he was always very deeply spiritual, very, very much connected, you know, very connected to um, his dreams. He loved talking about his dreams, even up until today. He's in his uh, late eighties, but he still wants to sit down with me and talk to me about the dreams that he's been having. So he was always a very deeply spiritual person. 
um, uh, to the point when I, you know, when I became Muslim, actually, just to, just to fast forward, when I actually became Muslim, um, he had zero concerns. Wow. Yeah, he was actually uh, quite, he was actually quite impressed that uh, not only that, you know, I, I, I could make such a mature decision to choose a particular religion, but uh, he was actually quite impressed that, you know, being someone who grew up in the farm, you know, people who grow up on the farm, they, they wake up very, very early, right? Because there's a lot of work to do and you, you know, you can't, you can't sit in your bed and sleep. Well, actually what happened, the roosters wake you up actually. So, um, so what happened, uh, he was thoroughly impressed by Islam because Islam caused his son to actually wake up earlier than him in the morning <laughs> because we pray yes. Fajr, which especially in the summer months, yeah. I actually became Muslim in the summer. And, you know, I started praying, started praying very early in the morning and he was, he was actually in shock that I was waking up to pray. So, 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 um, so mentorship, I would say it begins actually with, with my father. When I actually, um, uh, accepted Islam and maybe I could, I, I, I could go through this, you know, eventually what happened is I wanted to go a bit beyond just you know, my individualized reading and just studying and I wanted to actually meet an imam. So I called up the local uh, mosque where I was living and I said, I'd like to speak with an imam. And they said, yeah, sure. Gave them my name and gave them my number. And I received a call back from the imam of, of, of this particular mosque. And I explained, yeah, you know, I've been reading about Islam, studying about Islam. You know, I just, I, I'm just interested to meet an imam, like meet someone who has some authority in the religion. So he said, yes, of course. So we met and had a long conversation. He served some tea and some sweets, you know, as I later discovered was just a staple of, you know, Muslim manners <laughs> and hospitality. And uh, after speaking for, you know, a long, quite a long time, just, you know, just kicking it about all kind of stuff. <laughs> he looks at me and says, what are you waiting for? I said, what do you mean? He says, what are you waiting for? The way you're speaking to me, you sound actually like <laughs> so he knew a Muslim. Before. Yeah. Yeah, that you wanted to. So I said, so, okay, what am I waiting for? I'm actually not sure. <laughs> he says, repeat after me. Oh. Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah. Ashhadu anna Muhammad Rasulullah. I bear witness that there's no God but Allah. And I bear witness that Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. I repeated it. He stood up and said, congratulations and welcome to Islam. That's it. Finished. Done. He said, come with me. So he said, oh. So uh, I said, oh, okay. Uh, so I go with him. He opens up this big closet uh, in the masjid. And there's all these books. He said, you like to read, right? I said, yeah. He starts giving me all these books. says, take this, take that, take this, take that. And I want you to come tomorrow if you're able. I want you to come to the mosque tomorrow. And I'm going to teach you how to read the Qur'an. Because the Qur'an is Islam. 
And aside from all of these books that I'm giving you and the books that you have read, the book that you need to connect with and you need to develop a relationship with is the Qur'an. So I'm going to begin by teaching you how to read the Qur'an. So I went back the next day. We had the Qur'an in front of us, but before we actually opened and dealt with the Qur'an, he said, repeat after me. Alif, <laughs> Alif, Ba, Ba, Ta, Ta. We went on. We went through the alphabet. Say Dod, Dod. No, no, no. Dod. Uh, you know. And then he explained to me the, you know, the, the typical story that, you know, the Arabs are, are nicknamed Ahlul Dod, you know, the people of Dod, because that's a very unique, you know, it's a very unique sound. So we went through all of that, right? <laughs> and that was my. You know, that was my, you know, th those were my, the earliest of early days uh, in Islam. And he himself, uh, the imam who I um, became Muslim with, uh, he proved to be a very, very wise teacher. And you mentioned mentor. Um, he was a very wise mentor, you know, during my early, early moments as a Muslim. Um, and one lesson that I did learn later on you know, in my life um, as a Muslim is that our uh, tradition, you know, our religion, our way of life is not inherited through books, although books are a vehicle towards understanding, towards uh, wisdom, but it is actually inherited uh, through people, through people, you know, people who embody, you know, uh, the message of the Qur'an and who embody, you know, um, uh, the prophetic way, the way of our beloved Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So this is something that, you know, um, I, I've been able to um, to experience and something that I've been able to, um, uh, to teach to others, you know, in my life uh, as a Muslim and in my life as a chaplain. Are you still in touch with that man? Uh, yes. Relationship. Yes. Um, although um, I haven't actually um, uh, been in contact for some time, but Alhamdulillah, many more teachers have come in my life that I cannot say have replaced, you know, that special moment, but have, you know, helped me, helped me to, um, uh, you know, uh, be, a, uh, be a Muslim and to be a believer and, and, and to maintain. So, um, so what does the story go from there? I mean, I know you studied overseas for a bit, but I'm sure that wasn't right away. Yeah, you know, I, I can't say, you know, a lot of people, I hear a lot of people, you know, um, a lot of people have studied overseas, right? And everyone gets really excited when they come back because they become sheikh so-and-so, imam so-and-so, mufti so-and-so. You know, I can't say that, you know, I followed the same uh, trajectory. You know, I like to say that, okay... I traveled overseas, but I was more like a a, a, a long-term tourist, okay? Yeah, so I, I, I can say that, um, you know, I did live overseas for a while, but I don't want to, I don't want to give this exotic impression that there was something really wonderful. Like, I don't want to give people this exaggerated expectation of what, what, what they'll get from me because I lived in Morocco for a while. Uh, no, it's not like that. To be honest with you, I went out to Morocco, um, uh, to live for a while. Um, with my uh, with my wife and at that time two children, um, uh, you know to you know to study a little bit of Arabic language and to um, 
uh, again, you know, uh, upon the advice of my, you know, first teacher uh, to memorize the Quran. Uh, I did not uh, complete the Quran, but I did uh, spend much of my time, you know, um, reading, memorizing, and of course learning, you know, uh, went, you know, some basic, you know, uh, fiqh primers, etc. As well as trying to survive in a foreign country, I did teach English as well. So, um, you know, I, I can't say that, you know, I followed the same trajectory as some of our uh, esteemed, you know, uh, teachers. Um, but yes, I did spend some time uh, overseas and I was able to benefit from, you know, um, uh, a lot of very, what I would consider very illuminated teachers and also just to learn, um, you know, how to be Muslim, you know, because, um, you know, a lot of us do go through the motions and many of us who do convert to Islam, um, we go through a lot of struggles to, to figure out exactly what to do. Okay, what do I do now? You know, a lot of people, they, you know, take their shahada and then all of a sudden everybody crowds around them. They give them hugs. There's some takbirs here and there. You know, um, for the brothers, everyone wants to give them a kufi, change their clothes, change their name, you know. Uh, sisters, here's a khimah that you got to put on. And, you know, hey, we're going to find you a husband. <laughs> you know, it, it, there's, there's a lot of real confusion. And so so what exactly are we supposed to do? Uh, what are we supposed to know? You know, there's a lot going on. Everybody wants to show us, you know, how to be a good Muslim, what to learn, what not to learn who to uh, learn from, who to run away from. Like we're like there, there, there's, a, there's a lot going on, but I think sometimes there is this, um, there's this uh, lack of emphasis upon how to be, like how to be Muslim, you know, how to be Muslim. There's an emphasis upon, you know, uh, how to do the Muslim thing, <laughs> what you have to know to do the Muslim thing, but not necessarily, you know, how to become something better than you were yesterday, today. Like, I think that is a serious, uh, there's a serious vacuum in in the convert community um, um, uh, concerning that particular dimension. So I can say that my, my, my travels overseas, I was able to get a little bit of a taste of that that indeed we do have a very, very rich tradition, you know, embodied in some uh, incredible human beings, incredible, incredible human beings. And and that's something that I could say I really did benefit from, um, you know, living overseas, but as well uh, traveling overseas. What motivated you to go there? And, and, And I guess, why did you choose Morocco in particular? Um, you know, I don't have a very exotic reason. It was easy to go to Morocco. I was encouraged by, you know, a handful of, uh, a handful of, you know, elder Muslims that, oh, you know, you, uh, you should, uh, go to the Gulf, you know, to study because the Gulf, they, you know, they have all of these elaborate scholarships, at least at that time. I'm not sure how it is now. And, uh, you know, um, you know, it's, it, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's a relatively comfortable stay for a Westerner uh, to live in the Gulf, etc. Um, some said you should go to Syria because they're very, very good at teaching Arabic to non-Arabic speakers. This was a long time ago. This was the 90s. 
Um, uh, but of course, uh, it's complicated to travel sometimes to Saudi Arabia, especially if you're a married person. Uh, I'm not leaving my wife behind to go study. Um, uh, even as important as studying Arabic, studying Islam is I'm not leaving my wife behind. Um, uh, going to Syria was quite, uh, for me at that time was kind of awkward. We had to get a visa and, you know, I wasn't really hip on all that kind of stuff. But then I found, okay, Morocco. Hey, you just buy a ticket and you land and you go. So I said, okay, let's go there. Wait, there's no visa? No, no, you just go. Well, there's a visa. Of course, they stamp your, yeah, your passport. You get a three-month three uh, visa, right, as a Canadian, and you go. And you just go because um, they, they, have, they have a very, um, they have a, a very developed uh, tourism industry. So they make it easy for a lot of Westerners to go. Um, but, you know, I, my intention was not to go as a tourist. Uh, I, I discovered a lot of incredible things while I was there. But my intention was to go and just stay for a while, you know, benefit from the, uh, from the country, the culture, and, you know, learn some Arabic along the way, uh, memorize the Quran, etc. So um, uh, that's why I went. But then when I went, I realized uh, why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, why God Almighty uh, actually brought me there. There, there are a lot, of, um, a lot of wonderful things to discover there. Um, a very rich uh, spiritual tradition. Going back to some of my uh, early studies of African history, African Muslim history, uh, much of it actually revolves around, you know, the kingdom of Morocco. Um, the Qarawiyin University um, was a major center of Islamic learning that many of our great luminaries of the Islamic and African past have, have, have studied. Um, they've passed through uh, Morocco, specifically the city of Fes. Um, so, of course, there was a lot to discover there and a lot of very um, uh, historical, illuminated individuals are, are buried in Fes. So there, there really is, um, there's a lot to benefit from, not only uh, when it comes to traditional Islamic knowledge, but traditional Islamic spirituality and connection. So alhamdulillah, it was of great benefit, uh, my time there. And, and when you were on your way back, I, I mean, what was kind of, uh, what were you bringing back with you and, and what, what was kind of your hope um, of like what to do with the knowledge once you came back? Well, ultimately, you know, m my hope really uh, coming back was um, uh, to be a faithful Muslim, to be a faithful believer. It really was about me. I didn't really have any intention um, to be Imam Yassin or Sheikh Yassin. I have I had zero interest in this. I really had a selfish reason for going. I wanted to go in order to learn, you know, a little bit more about um, the Islamic tradition and to make sure that that's established in my home. That was it. This whole imam stuff and this whole uh, sheikh stuff, it all came by accident through actually my, um, uh, my life as a chaplain, okay? 
um, that's really where it where it came from. But you know, um, I think a, a problem that many students of knowledge have, and I say this with the utmost humility, many of our students of knowledge feel that going away to a Muslim majority country or elsewhere to study Islam is somehow a gateway to a profession. I think this is a mistake. That's a mistake. We learn about this tradition so that we may gain proximity to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Finished. And if you've gained something that is worth sharing with others, then you should share it and you're obliged to share it. But ultimately, learning about this rich tradition is really so that we can gain nearness to God Almighty. That's the intention. Everything else, everything else is just extra. It, it really is just extra. You know how they say that, you know, um, you know, even, even the, the highest ranking scholars of Islam, they remain students. Like they say that all the time. I'm, I'm just simply a student. You may ask, Sheikh, uh, what is your opinion of this? And what do you think about this? And say, you know, they might, you know, uh, with all the humility that they can muster, say, you know, I'm not sure I'm still a student. You know, <laughs> you know, th this is how they live. Because ultimately, uh, knowledge is uh, to help us, you know, be the best worshipers of God Almighty. Right. So coming back from Morocco, hey, um, you know, my primary intention was just simply, uh, you know, how am I going to live? How am I going to take care of my wife and children? You know, where am I going to work? That, that, that was that was kind of like that was where that was where my head was at. But of course, you know, having that that memory and having that experience. Right. You know, I always tell people that. You know, um, if you're blessed with the resources, um, you're blessed with money to do something, don't spend it on things, but spend it on experiences. Spend it upon um, the building of memory. Spend it upon a moment that you can carry with you for the rest of your life. So I would say that, you know, um, you know, the, the blessed opportunity I had to live in Morocco for that time was really um, was really about the experience, was about um, uh, the memory, was about um, you know that which can't really be taken away, like buying a car or buying a house or whatever. No, that memory is something that is planted deep, you know, uh, within my spiritual heart. What well, What was the most important part of that experience? I mean, was it just being there and experiencing a Muslim country? Was it the learning? Was it something else? It was all of the above. And uh, maybe one thing that Im immediately pops out in my, in my head is uh, certain relationships. There are certain relationships um, in my life as a Muslim that I maintain up until today that were established when I was in Morocco, um, specifically with certain people. There were certain people that I met you know, uh, certain uh, brothers and sisters that I met when I was in Morocco who, you know, uh, ironically enough, were actually from Canada, were from uh, the United States. And I can I can say that some of my some of my best, 
you know, Muslim relationships um, were built actually, you know, in Africa, in Morocco. Um, uh, that is something that uh, that perhaps was, was probably among the greatest of blessings that I, I, I received. I was gifted when I was in Morocco. So you mentioned that one of the biggest uh, things that it influenced was your role as a chaplain. Um, your the biggest thing your experience uh, influenced was your role as a chaplain. Um, and so, were you a chaplain before? Uh, afterwards, afterwards, um, you know, I I lived in Morocco for some time, and I I returned returned to Canada, and um, you know, it was kind of in this uh, I was in this this space where I wasn't really sure, you know, uh, what direction to take my life. Okay. Thought about returning to school, but I was always, um, unsatisfied with post-secondary mm -hmm. education. Uh, maybe I didn't exactly find my niche, uh, in university. Um, that's, perhaps one of the reasons why I took off is I'm just going to go to Africa. Yeah. I, 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 university, this is not for me. I'm just going to go to Africa. So, um, I came back and, uh, living within the Muslim community and also, um, uh, teaching in a very, you know, modest fashion, um, associated with, um, you know, an Islamic school or two. But then what happened is, uh, a good friend of mine, uh, a Moroccan brother actually, you know, mentioned that the Correctional Service of Canada, our federal prison system, was looking for a full-time uh, Muslim chaplain to work with Muslim inmates uh, in the Ontario region based in Kingston, Ontario. And because uh, since I had returned from overseas, I had been volunteering at uh, some of our local provincial uh, prisons, visiting uh, those who were incarcerated there, offering some encouragement. Um, I've been doing that for quite some time. And um, uh, my friend uh, mentioned that they were, they were looking for a Muslim chaplain to work in these institutions. And he knew that I had a lot of experience at least as a volunteer working at these institutions. He said, you should apply for this. I said, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm interested in that. I wasn't living in the Kingston area and I didn't, really didn't have any intention to live in Kingston. <laughs> but he said, look, uh, here, I'm just going to send you, send you all the documents. I really think you should apply. So I went to um, an organization in Ottawa called the Islam Care Center. And introduced the idea to them, saying that, well, they're looking for a Muslim chaplain. And um, do you know anyone who perhaps would be interested in applying uh, for this position? So the director uh, of the Islam Care Center in Ottawa said, you, you have to apply and we are going to sponsor your application. Because uh, an independent religious organization has to be a sponsor because they have to you know, certify you as somebody somebody um, uh, who can adequately represent the religious community in uh, this particular correctional facility. It's the same thing for, you know, a Catholic uh, chaplain, a Protestant chaplain, a Jewish chaplain. Uh, they, they need a sponsoring body. So 
the director of the Islam Care Center said that we're going to sponsor you and you have to apply. I said, look, I'm not interested in applying. There were other things happening in my life at that time. And I wasn't really sure if that, that, that was something that I could do. He said, listen, just apply. Let's see what happens. Long story short, I applied. I went for an interview. I had to suit up and everything, go for this interview. And lo and behold, I got a call. Congratulations, Mr. Dwyer. You have been chosen as Canada's first full-time Muslim chaplain uh, to work with uh, Muslim offenders in the Correctional Service of Canada. I said, oh boy, I guess, uh, I guess, I guess this is it. You know, whatever comes to us was never meant to pass us by. Whatever passes us by was never meant to come to us. There it is. At that time, uh, again, there were a lot of things happening uh, in my life that maybe I can't go into right now, but I um, was planning to make a move to a different city in Ontario, but this kind of changed plans. Anyway, I did shura with my wife and said, here's the situation. They've, they want me to do this position, and I suppose they really like me uh, because I'm not sure exactly what the job is going to, <laughs> how they're going to define this job for me. And uh, after, after some consultation and after some prayer, um, I decided to accept the position. So I became a chaplain. And all of a sudden I was put in this position where I now was to be a mentor. I now was to be a counselor. I now was to be a religious and spiritual uh, guide for many um, uh, who found themselves uh, incarcerated, many who found themselves in a very vulnerable situation, uh, many who, like me many years before, were, were, were actually converts to Islam, or if not converts, they were actually people trying to, you know, get back, you know, into a religious and spiritual rhythm, you know, after having fallen away. Um, so that's how I got into chaplaincy and in, in this position as a quote-unquote, you know, religious or spiritual you know, mentor towards a lot of people. Yeah. So, so what? I mean, you clearly had an interest in this before. You were you were volunteering. So, what was and what what made you want to do that? Well, you know, um, I did mention earlier that I read the autobiography of Malcolm X, and we know that uh, Malcolm X had spent some time in prison, and actually, many many of those who we revere today from the past had had done time uh, in prison and i was always interested in in you know uh doing time quote unquote time in prison uh of course with the option to leave at the end of the day but um i was very interested um in prison work um because i discovered later that i actually saw a lot of myself in many of those that that i worked with and, you know, there's this, uh, th there are usually walls around a prison and those walls, you know, um, really create, um, not only a physical barrier, but a psychological barrier, um, between those on the outside and those on the inside. You know, prison is like a, it's a metaphor really of life. Um, you know, we're all in a prison in some degree, you know, on the spiritual level, you know, um, some of us are in 
physical prisons, like many inmates that I worked with, but many of us are in, you know, we're in spiritual prisons, you know, prisons of the nafs, prisons of the, you know, the, the, the lower self, right? Um, so the prison acts as a, a really important metaphor. And that's what I discovered when I actually began working in the prison. But I'd all, I was always interested in working with um, the vulnerable, working with those that found themselves in, in some serious difficulty. Um, I'd always had that interest and I just found myself. I just found myself, you know, volunteering in the prison in my capacity as a Muslim, right? To provide chaplaincy care. So um, when it comes to my formal training as a chaplain, it was more or less, you know, it was on the job training. Um, because there weren't a lot of people within the Muslim community that actually had experience, you know, uh, pastoring uh, uh, to Muslim inmates. Um, you know, our Catholic and Protestant friends and neighbors, they have a long history of chaplaincy care. In the Muslim community, we don't have that, that long history. Although we have a long history of service, um, but within the prisons, no. I suppose because the majority of the Muslim population in this country um, is um, is a community uh, that is uh, either coming from or first generation of people who have you know um, come from Muslim majority countries, right? So there's a very there's a very deep taboo associated with prison, right? So a lot of uh, a lot of Muslims uh, you know see prison as kind of a mystery. Or they associate it with prison in Muslim majority countries, which actually very, 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 very scary places, you know, associated sometimes with, um, you know, dictatorial regimes, associated with political repression. So the idea of prison is, is really scary. So you don't find a lot. Things are changing today. But, you know, during that time, you didn't find a lot of Muslims that would volunteer to visit prisons yeah. um, because it was, you know, it was scary for them. Uh, the idea of prison was, was traumatic for them. Even many of them who have had experience, you know, either going to prison or, you know, they had a lot of negative, you know, uh, uh, negative feelings about prison. But here, prison is prison wherever you are, but we do have members of our congregation who are in prison. So they can't come to us. So we have to go to them. We have to serve them. Right. Um, so the stereotypes are changing, but at that time, you know, there weren't a lot of, a lot of Muslims who were, who were volunteering or who were connected to, um, to serving those in prison. So that's actually, you know, how I got myself involved. Yeah. This may be a dangerous question because it might be totally off, but, um, you know, is there a tradition maybe, um, of, you know, visiting people in prisons or speaking with people in prisons because of Prophet Yusuf? Oh, very good. Well, when it comes to the whole topic of restorative justice, restorative justice, um, you know, a lot of our political leaders, you know, they say we have to be tough on crime, tough on crime. It's a really easy way to get elected in any Western country. We have to be tough on crime. I agree. We need to be tough on crime, but we have to be tough on the causes of crime as well. And you judge a society, you judge the worth of a society based on how they treat the most vulnerable, the most rejected, 
the most despised. That's how you judge a society. Okay. Restorative justice is about, you know, of course, being tough on crime, but being tough on the causes of crime and bringing self-worth to those who have fallen, you know, fallen, you know, away from the glory of God. That's what restorative justice is all about. So we find Islamic tradition replete with these kind of examples, right? Many of our luminaries, many prophets of God, like Prophet Yusuf, peace be upon him, their spiritual life revolved around prison, right? Revolved around themes of patience, revolved around themes of redemption, revolved around themes of, uh, uh, of, of sacredness, of bringing light to places of darkness. Our tradition is replete with these kind of examples. Even many scholars of our tradition, they spent time in prison, right? Yeah. Standing up for the truth, standing up for justice, saying a word of truth, you know, in the face of a tyrant, of an oppressor. Many of our great illuminated leaders have, have spent time in prison. There's no shame in prison. There's no shame, right? There is worth. There is goodness to be found in these places. Of course, there are victims of crime as well. But some of the, you know, most spiritual moments that I've ever had are actually speaking to victims of crime and how they were able to forgive, how they were able to um to maintain some semblance of completeness after after being victimized and also reconciliation with uh, offenders as well, right? So all of that is tied into a lot of very, very high spiritual themes in the Islamic tradition. And we have it there. It's, it's part of our tradition. It's just that ESR, our, our Catholic and Protestant colleagues, well, in the Western context, they have a bit of a head start, you know? But we don't have to reinvent the wheel, but we have to, again, extract from our tradition those themes that can, that, 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 that can help inmates do their time before the time does them. You know, we have a tradition. We have something to offer, um, uh, um, uh, for those who are incarcerated. And we do have, you know, Islamic pastoral care. You know, we do have programs that speak about, you know, how to, how to bring completeness you know, to human beings, right? We have a whole tradition that revolves, uh, you know, around um, a spiritual reformation, you know? Some would call it tasawwuf, right? It's basically about reformation from the inside out. And when we speak to uh, many inmates, that's really where it begins, right? Because, um, you know, being locked up is not easy. But you could say that they're in an extended um, uh, khalwa, an extended uh, retreat. They're given an opportunity to actually speak to themselves, right? Which is actually very, very difficult to do, whether you're in prison or not. Like, we have a hard time speaking to ourselves, don't we? Because there's, there's just a lot of noise. You know, you ever been in a room, like, where it's really, really quiet, you're with a lot of people, and no one's saying anything? You might say, 
It's too quiet, man. Somebody say something. Turn the radio on or do something. It's awkward silence. Exactly. But actually, that awkward silence, I have a theory about that. That awkward silence is actually that monster inside of you. You don't want to hear that monster inside of you. There's a monster inside of us. That's why we need moments of quiet. We need moments of retreat. We need moments where we're alone, where we can actually learn how to talk to ourselves, right? We can learn how to reflect and how to, you know, ask ourselves very, very difficult questions, right? Yeah, prison is like a metaphor for that. You know what I mean? Um, so we do have, we do have um, a spiritual tradition that speaks directly um, to the field of chaplaincy um, uh, in prisons and also in post-secondary institutions as well. That's a really great segue. So uh, how did you make that shift from uh, chaplaincy in prisons to post-secondary? Um, you know, I was working uh, on a part-time basis at Queen's University in Kingston while I was a chaplain with the Correctional Service of Canada. And um, I was um, really asked because there were a lot, you know, th- there were some accommodation issues at Queen's University that they that the university wanted to formally address. So they asked if I would just I would just come around every once in a while and be available for students. Again, more more spiritual accidents getting getting into certain you know fields or yeah, except. But alhamdulillah, um, coming to Toronto with Muslim Chaplaincy of Toronto, what happened is, um, you know, um, at that time I had left the Correctional Service of Canada. And again, I was approached, you know, by a friend saying, well, Muslim Chaplaincy of Toronto is looking to expand at Ryerson University. Uh, why don't you, uh, why don't you apply? I said, no, <laughs> I'm not interested. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I said, no, I'm not interested. He said, no, ah, just apply. It, it wouldn't hurt. I said, all right, whatever. Uh, I applied. I was called for an interview. And I got another call. Congratulations. You have been chosen as the Muslim chaplain at Ryerson University. I said, okay, thank you very much. Again, I went to who? My wife. I said, okay, here's the situation. Um, what do you think? We did consultation. We did some shura. We prayed on it. And I said, yes, uh, I'll accept. So that was about two and a half years ago. Um, and since that time, uh, Muslim Chaplaincy of Toronto has gone through a lot of changes. So I've been asked to actually, you know, uh, be available for students, not only at Ryerson University, but here at in the University of Toronto on behalf of Muslim Chaplaincy of Toronto. So when it comes to chaplaincy in prison, chaplaincy in the university, it's a little bit different, uh, but at this at the same time, similar. Number one, uh, the architecture of prisons and universities are very similar. Uh, I'll leave it up to, you know, aspiring scholars and intellectuals to figure that one out. I think the message is pretty apparent, but we'll leave that for another uh, podcast. Um, uh, but yes, uh, everyone, we all need uh, mentorship. We all have moments where we may need uh, some type of counseling. We all need um, uh, religious and spiritual education. And we all need religious and spiritual advocacy. So those things, you know, um, are applicable both 
in a prison chap a prison chaplaincy context and a post-secondary chaplaincy context um we all need to be we all need um uh spiritual service and and chaplains are present uh to provide that and just one last question it's a two-part question but i guess um just some advice for young people or anyone that's listening um about kind of what you talked about earlier cultivating that inner dialogue with ourselves as a way to improve ourselves in our relationship with those and then um how to find mentorship mm. Well, um, uh, God says in the Quran, Ya ayyuhalladhina amanudhkurullaha dhikran kathira. O you who believe, remember Allah as much as you can. Remember Allah as much as you can. Remember Allah standing, sitting, and reclining as much as you possibly can. You don't have to be Imam so-and-so. You don't have to be Sheikh so-and-so, Mufti so-and-so to remember Allah, to remember God. Uh, that is the key. And that is our protection. And that is our shield. There was a man many years ago who was known for his uh, worship, known for his uh, aestheticism, his nearness to God, his consciousness of God. And he discovered that the people of his village began worshiping a tree. And so, of course, being a worshiper of God, he said that I have to take care of this tree because to him, the worst crime that you can commit toward the one God is to worship other than him. So he went out to chopped down this tree. Along the way, he met a stranger and the stranger asked him, where are you going? And the pious man says, I'm going to chop down this tree because my people have taken it as an idol. So the stranger says, I can't let you do that. So the pious man says, no, I'm, I'm going to chop down the tree. Yes, no, yes, no. They start fighting. So the pious man subdues the stranger and is about to finish him off. But the stranger says, wait with me, let's make a deal. So the pious man, you know, giving everyone the benefit of the doubt, says, okay, what's your deal? So the stranger says, look, I will give you silver coins every day for the rest of your life. Think of all the good that you can do with these silver coins. You can feed the poor, uh, feed the hungry, help the destitute, the needy, etc. Every day for the rest of your life, I will give you these silver coins. Just don't chop down that tree. So the pious man goes, hmm, yeah, I think of all the good that I can do. I can, you know, feed the hungry, help the poor, the destitute, the needy. He says, yes, it's a deal. He goes back home, puts, a, you know, uh, puts away his axe, wakes up the next morning. He opens his door. He sees a silver coin. He goes and spends it on the poor, the destitute, the needy, comes back home, goes to sleep, wakes up the next morning. Same thing, sees the silver coin. This goes on and on and on for a really, really long time until finally he wakes up one morning, opens his door, no silver coin. So he goes back and gets his axe and he goes out to do what? <laughs> Chop down the tree. Along the way, who does he meet? The same stranger. <laughs> so the stranger says, hey, where are you going? <laughs> Five man says, no, 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 get out of my way. I'm going to chop down this tree. The stranger says, no, I can't let you do that. The pious man says, no, get out of my way. They start fighting again. 
But this time, what's different? The stranger subdues the pious man and is about to finish him off. And the pious man looks to the heavens and says, what is this? How is it before I defeated you, but today you defeated me? So the stranger looks at him with contempt and says, because before, when you fought me, when you battled me, you battled me remembering Allah. But today you fight me remembering the silver coins. Ya ayyuhalladhina amanu dhukurullaha dhikran kathira. O you who believe, remember Allah as much as you can. That's the key. It's our protection. Remembrance of God is our shield. That is our advice yesterday, today, and inshallah tomorrow. And concerning mentorship, again, our tradition is inherited not through books, but through people. Through people who are near and close to God and who follow the prophetic way. If you can connect yourself with such a person, then indeed you'll have a blessed life and you'll have a blessed hereafter. If you can find someone who can show you, who can train you to remember God at all times, then indeed you'll have a good life and a good hereafter. It's like going to the gym. Everybody wants to go to the gym and get in shape, right? <laughs> uh, everybody's, you know, uh, you know, w- wants to stay young. You know, everybody wants to lose that, you know, when you get to a certain age, you get this belly fat, you know? <laughs> They want to lose the belly fat. They want to look like they looked when they were 19. You have to get a trainer, right? And the trainer will, okay, will put stress on your body, you know, make you run until you, you know, feel like you want to vomit, you know, because that they train you, right? They train your body to be able to, you know, to be able to, to deal with the stress. The same thing we need for our, our spiritual body. We need the same training. We need the same. We need help. We, we can't do it on our own. We need help. So therefore, um, we have to busy ourselves with being around people uh, that can teach us how to remember God, can teach us how to be connected to God, can teach us how to have consciousness of God. We have to, we have to search for those people. And when we've found someone like that, we have to hold on for dear life. Thank you so much for your time and that beautiful metaphor at the end and, and so much words of wisdom. Well, thank you, Sister Heba, and uh, congratulations on your podcast. It was a pleasure speaking with you. And uh, I pray that you know our paths will cross again very soon. Allahumma salli wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala نور المنازل يا محمد يا من خالق من نور ربه يا من سمي قبل يوم